Welcome to Target Cancer Podcast. My name is Dr. Sanjay Janeja. I'm a hematologist, medical oncologist, also known as the Onc Doc on social media. And I'm very excited today because we've done several podcasts on talking on solid tumors and what causes them. And we've gone down the metabolic track about sugars and metabolism and mitochondrial injury. And the one thing I keep saying in the comments is, which is important, I'm like, I don't know if all of these things apply to blood cancers. And the reason for that is blood cancers just behave a little differently, especially if they're in the bone marrow. Lymphoma is kind of this weird thing in the middle. But with all of that said, the bigger point that we're going to address is when everyone asks that question, what, what caused my cancer or did this or that cause my cancer? And usually the answer is no, but rarely the answer is yes. And I, for that reason, think it's the right thing to do to talk to a man that was on the forefront of basically validating for patients that, hey, there are scenarios where it's not quote unquote bad luck, but whatever you're told, and there are things that cause it, how we came across it, and really talking about cancer as a whole, understanding that fact. I have none other than Dr. Chadi Nabad, who is the chairman of Karis Precision Oncology Alliance. Um, he has just been amazing when it comes to like kind of the litigation litigation part of cancer stuff, which is not really his interest. He fell into it because he's very good at what he does. He's a lymphoma specialist. He did primarily blood cancers. He is now an author. He has a fantastic book that's on my shelf and the bookmark is already in it. And with all that said, couldn't be more excited to have you, Chadi. Thank you for being here. Sanjay, you're, you're very kind. This is an introduction I definitely do not deserve. I really appreciate being on your show and I'm a big fan and Look forward to our conversation, and uh, I hope after this introduction, I won't disappoint viewers and listeners. No, I haven't said this before, and I can tell you why you won't, because I've heard your name multiple times in multiple scenarios at like the Hematology World Conference and, and Oncology, like, you should talk to him, and I'm like, I really want to, and then, and then here we are. So we talked about that before we got... Serendipity. Uh, Serendipity. That's right. It's a bit, this is it's due now. So I'm going to get into the very first question that a lot of people have asked. A lot of people. And that is the brand name Roundup, right? And there was this, that, this finally this, not even concept, but this admission that there are things that can, are in everyday products or that people are exposed to that can cause a scary cancer, especially for decades, that was treated very aggressively with intense chemotherapy that usually causes side effects even down the road. We've heard about a lot of things on Netflix, you know, here there was some leakage in the water, this and that and the other. We're talking about a very common product. So that is confirmed that it causes lymphoma. And before we get into how that came to happen and how you were the man that was really like in the center of that to make that right, I think for patients and, and the industry, and I know it was a bold move and I can't wait to dig into all that. As an academic doctor, it's a bold move, but you did the, like what I respect is the right thing. You said, we need to take responsibility for you know, saying yes or no when it comes to a very scary illness. But all that said, how does Roundup cause lymphoma or why? Or do we know? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good question. Look, I mean, I, I think that to in my mind, that question is settled, that Roundup causes non-Hodgkin lymphoma in some patients. I think it's fair to say that it does not cause lymphoma in all patients that use it. And lymphoma is caused by many other factors, not only by Roundup. And, and as you just said, Sanjay, there are the majority of lymphomas, we don't know why they occur. So I think it's, it's important to recognize that, um, you know, as a, as a wheat killer, there has been research studies that linked 
non-Hodgkin lymphoma, the development of non-Hodgkin lymphoma to uh, Roundup, to the use of Roundup. But your question at its core is, do we know the mechanism by which Roundup causes non-Hodgkin lymphoma? To step back just a little bit, the main ingredient of Roundup is glyphosate. So there's glyphosate and there are surfactants with glyphosate and some water and other chemicals. All of this together uh, basically make Roundup. There has been some theories, but most of the theories focused on chromosomal damage and breaking the DNA and impairing the cell's ability to repair the DNA. So there has been some studies on that. There has been some studies on glyphosate-inducing oxidative stress. And as you know, and as your viewers and listeners know, oxidative stress could be problematic, could be in certain situations uh, a mechanism by which certain cancers develop. But I still don't believe that we know the entire way or the mechanisms by which uh, it potentially causes non-Hodgkin lymphoma. But these are two plausible suggestions that have been published and written about. So to that point, so we've talked about things like where you have a damage, uh, you have basically damage control, things that repair or destroy something that is problematic that could become cancer. The most notorious example is Lee-Fermini syndrome, right? TP53, that is like your main regulator. That is everything that keeps order. And some people are born with a disorder where that just doesn't work that well. So what does it do? It permits a lot of errors that otherwise would have been taken care of. And I, I have a 90% chance, a 90% chance of having cancer in their lifetime. And I want to say it's like 60% by the time they're 32 years old. I mean, it is just terrible. But that's a concept that we haven't talked about in a long time. Uh, in this podcast, which is your body has tools to blow up things or repair things that could later be problematic. So to your point where Roundup may, you know, facilitate this component that can possibly, possibly not help with the repair, and maybe that's the mechanism, is Roundup likened to other cancers? Um, and is it still a problem or still a thing? And if it is, how long down the line past that Roundup exposure uh, can you kind of consider or wonder that? Yeah, so the, maybe I'll take the second part of your question, which is how long from exposure until you develop uh, lymphoma, obviously, which is the area I focused on. What you're referring to is something called the latency period, which is obviously in medicine, the time from you get exposed to a hazardous material or a toxin until the time you develop the hazard that is associated with this particular toxin. And it, it's not really clear whether there's an actual binary time frame by which you can confidently say that if you have been exposed less than five years, you're okay, more than five years, you're not. I think the devil is in the details and every particular scenario is different. Imagine just to bring it you know, closer to your viewers and listeners' ideas. So, you know, I mean, if you say, if you tell, if you ask your patient, which you do every day, do you smoke? And the patient says, yes, I do. That question is not sufficient. You did not get a satisfying answer. You'd like to know, I mean, how much does he or she smoke? How long have they been smoking? You know, I mean, maybe the type of tobacco. I mean, I don't know. if. But I think you'd want to elaborate more. It's almost like asking somebody, do you spray Roundup? Yes, I do. Well, that's not enough. I mean... Do you spray every day? Do you spray eight hours a day? Do you spray once uh, once a year? Do you wear uh, protective gear? 
So I think the devil is in the detail, and that's why one hat does not fit all. And I'll explain in a little bit about the first case as an example with Mr. Johnson versus Monsanto, where he sprayed five days a week, every single day for two years. That's a different kind of an exposure than somebody else. So I don't believe we have an accurate latency period. It could be short, it could be long, but that is really the time of exposure. So I think it has to differ between uh, each patient. And I think the, the other question you had hasn't been linked to other cancers. Um, I did not really study that thoroughly. I did not look at the association with other cancers. I think the data mainly is in non-Hodgkin lymphoma, but this does not mean that it may not be linked to other ailments or other diseases. It's possible. I have to tell you though, Sanjay, I think I'm more concerned about the fact that Roundup is in our diet is all over. If you think about it, because you spray the wheat killer on the crops, you spray them on the seeds. So your listeners must know that the GMOs led to the development of Roundup-ready seeds. So farmers can actually, you know, you you do the, the the seeds, the crops are resistant to the to the to Roundup. So you're able to actually spray the weed killer on the weeds, and you kill the weeds without damaging the crops and without damaging the seeds. So that's why the explosion of the use of Roundup increased in the mid '90s when the Roundup ready reeds be, seeds became available. But what that means is it's in corn. It's on soybean, it is on alfalfa, on cotton. So it's probably in cereal, it's probably in bread, a lot of things that we actually consume. Is it possible? I don't have the answer to this. But is it possible that some of what we're seeing in terms of gut leak uh, issues, autoimmune diseases, intolerance of certain foods, is it possible because we're seeing more exposure to that where it is more ubiquitous or not? I don't have the answer to that. But as I, the more I learned about Roundup, how often it's used, and all of this, I certainly became intrigued that there is a possibility, maybe there's a link between Roundup and other ailments beyond cancer. And I think others who are experts in the non-cancer world should investigate that and take a look at that. If we can get nerdy for a second or academic, like in the basic science way, this is completely like, I'm a nerd, by the way, every day, not in basic science. I'm like, I mean, you know, I'm as nerdy and geeky as they get, except not scientifically. I just happen to be a geek. <laughs> you just argue. You're just pan nerd. I'm the same way. So I love it. Exactly. Yeah. I always tell my residents, like, you know, or my residents always tell me really after rotation, they're like, one thing I didn't appreciate is how much you can learn from patients, not like learn about yourself, this and that, just literally learn. Like they have like yeah. jobs yeah. and trades and things that you just have no idea the, that you can that you're pretty to be able to pick the brain of, and you can become a jack of all trades. But that's that's a different podcast. But the nerdy basic science part is the reason, and this is just in my logical brain here, that lymphomas maybe have a little bit more of an incidence with Roundup because the lymph system kind of is clearing out those you know toxins, and basically, I think people don't even know. I don't even know if we've talked about what the lymph system is on this podcast. Do you want to explain that real quick? And maybe is there a link to why when you're having well, these chemical compounds that that it's it seems to be more of a blood cancer thing when you have heavy metals and paint and all this stuff. Like why are some predispositions more about lymphomas and leukemias? Why? Versus the other things that are more like associated with pancreatic cancer and liver cancer. Yeah, like I mean I, I I don't think I don't think in cancer Look, I think in cancer, we have sometimes more questions than answers, right? 
why does smoking increase the risk of bladder cancer or lung cancer and hardly or head and neck cancer, but really doesn't have an increased risk of GBM, glioblastoma or sarcoma? Or I think I think it's not always clear why certain exposures to hazardous materials increase the risk of particular cancers versus another. I think we, uh, as you and I know, and as your uh, listeners and viewers know, these these are areas of active investigations trying to understand whether these particular toxins cause particular issues on the cellular level or the DNA level, on the RNA level, in that particular cancer cell, in the particular cell versus another. Um, uh, my studying of the link between glyphosate and lymphoma really uh, about the DNA repair, chromosomal damage, oxidative stress. Um, I don't know. I think there are probably other reasons that we should investigate. But but a lot of times, I you always wonder. I mean, why? In, I mean, you know, why why would why would smoking increase risk of bladder cancer? It's like you're inhaling, you're inhaling the tobacco, so maybe you can justify the lung piece, but 90% of transitional cell cancers, um, you know, occur in smokers. Um, and even in lung cancer, we know that some lung cancers happen in non-smokers, right, uh, versus smokers. So uh, I, I think I give a lot of credit to folks who continue to investigate this. This is not an easy type of research, understanding all of this. I think it's going to get better now that we are looking at the molecular uh, structure of the tumors and trying to understand the impact of a particular, like, you know, if you think about, let's say you have two types of tissues, smokers and non-smokers, and you look at the DNA and the RNA makeup of smokers versus non-smokers, and then you can infer possibly that tobacco and nicotine causes this particular area mutation or biomarker or, uh, you know, uh, overexpression of a particular protein or or things of that nature. Uh, But the data on glyphosate is not, um, uh, did not really dig deep into that. Uh, Lots of the epidemiologic studies were a couple of decades ago where, uh, or 15, 16 years ago, where, you know, Patients did not necessarily undergo sequencing, and, um, and and it's not an easy type of research to do. But that's my studying suggested oxidative stress and chromosomal damage. Yeah, no doubt. I uh, I could definitely appreciate that. Dr. Sandeep Patel from um, UC San Diego shared the same time. He's like, just making any kind of statements we've just learned over and over again and over again that we've been humbled when it comes to diet and gut and GM. But we should ask questions. We ask we questions. We continue to ask questions, I You're think. Right. I think the idea of saying cancer is bad luck is a cap-out. I'm going to go on the record saying that. It's a cap-out. If you're going to say it's bad luck theory, that is wrong. Ask the question. Sometimes it's bad luck. But when you start telling me 90% or 96% or almost 100% is bad luck, you're capping out, you're refusing to investigate, and you're defying the science. I love that. Love that. And... You glossed over it in your brilliance, you know, pretty quickly. But I, I love that you mentioned, and you were one of the first people that was a guest that mentioned this. I tried to hit on it before. You said we are studying not just, I need everyone to understand this. You're not studying just what the features of that cancer was. And when we say molecular, we mean the composition and the makeup and all the things that it uses. You're saying we're even studying DNA and RNA and pro- protein synthesis and predispositions of our normal cells that we are hard over with. Otherwise... I presume, you know, polymorphisms, basically variations in things. 
And the analogy, I don't know where it came from to me, as you said that, was if you look at somebody with very fair skin, right, and possibly red hair, you know that they're more likely or you suspect they're more likely to burn in the sun than somebody who is very tan, like myself. That very fact, which sounds like, well, duh, Sanjay, what are you saying? That's what we can like even are starting to apply, especially at your company, I'm sure, on saying, what are some of the constituents? What are some of the properties that are inherently there that could then cause, you know, added either weakness or an Achilles heel or whatever to have certain cancers? And that's why cancer are complicated. We can always have a thousand reasons why it's complicated. But I will say, as a side note, I thought the closest thing I got with smoking was with those 98 compounds in tobacco, et cetera, et cetera, that it's very like urinary excreted and that that lining when you constantly get that like the same way with that smoked meats theory and having like a high barbecue smoke diet those things those toxins they keep coding just like uh the urinary system gu system but who knows yet to be validated so i'm i'm into your book i haven't been able to finish it because we just got linked up a week ago and i and i and i literally can't put it down when you discovered this and really when you saw it out of everything that happened and I'm jumping forward because I want to hear more about it. But what does this mean to you? Like as far as, as being as an oncologist, as far as a lot of attention being on treating cancer, a lot of attention being on preventing cancer, then you have this space where it's like something did something and we still need to treat that something, but it's good that we know. Is that is your mission or something you're passionate about making sure that doesn't happen more? Is it at the awareness? Is it, do you actually think people are getting away with kind of maybe getting again, getting away with things we know cause cancer and you think people should be more vocal to put a stop to it? I mean, rhetorically. I think that yeah. there, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, f- first, uh, maybe I'll, I'll just make sure I explain to, to your audience is that I was not aware of um, the link between Roundup and non-Hodgkin lymphoma. What I knew through my research through the teaching I received and through taking care of people and patients that pesticides as a category increase the risk of non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And I also know, as everybody does, that farmers as professionals have higher risk of developing non-Hodgkin lymphoma. But I did not necessarily knew every single type of pesticide or herbicides and and when I was contacted by a law firm, the Miller firm in Virginia, to look into that uh, based on my expertise in lymphoma, I told them I, I need to study this because I was not really familiar with all of the studies between glyphosate and non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And after I really read and studied and looked at the evidence, I became convinced and I agreed to work with them on behalf of the patients that they were representing. So that that's really how... It all started, but the reason for writing a book about it and about the litigation, about the trials, we need to make sure people know and are aware of what's going on. That's number one reason. That's the most important thing because we are all patients, either current patients, previous patients, or future patients, period. No one is going to ever escape being a patient and being in the healthcare. And I think I, I wrote the book in a very easy to read language. It is not written for doctors. It is not written for lawyers. It is not written for anybody who is a healthcare professional. It is written for people because I wanted to reach more people as much as possible so they are aware of what's going on. So awareness is key. That is very important. Number two is really demanding more from our regulatory agencies. I respectfully disagree with the EPA's position on glyphosate. The EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, 
has stated continuously that the glyphosate is safe and is not carcinogenic. But I go in the book in the history of how this actually started, because at some point in the beginning, the EPA thought it was carcinogenic, and then subsequently they changed their position without any data to suggest that they need to change position. So your readers are going to really scratch their head, like, what happened? Why did they really change their position? But I think we need to demand from our regulatory agencies more rigorous review of the evidence. And ultimately, you have to err on the side of safety for patients. So a compound does not need to be 100% certainly that it's going to cause cancer in everybody who's exposed to it, but you need to warn people. You know that smoking does not ca cause cancer in every smoker. You know that. You know people who refuse to stop smoking, they tell you, I know my grandfather smoked two packs of cigarettes, they hit it till 100. Well, that's great. It doesn't mean that smoking is good for you. But consumers today, you can go to the store and buy a pack of cigarettes and you're in your all right to do that because you're obviously have an informed consent. You know the risk and there's a warning label on smoking on cigarette, pack of cigarettes telling you this. So you need, to, you need to err on the side of safety. Tell people that this could potentially cause the main ingredient of Roundup potentially could be carcinogenic to some patients. That's all you have to do. Let the consumer then, if they want to still consume it, they are doing it on their own risk, if they are spraying with it, or they use protective gear when they do it. But to refuse to acknowledge that is really not appropriate in my opinion. So hopefully the book sheds some light into what's happened with the EPA and why we need to demand more questions and more science from them. So these are the two main reasons. And maybe the last part is sharing a little bit of uh, my own vulnerabilities as an expert witness who's never done that actually before and who found himself in the courtroom with these three major trials. And I, I was not shy of telling people how scared I was, how nervous I was. And I think, you know, it's not something I, you know, ever thought I, I would be doing, but, but here I was and I, I did it. And uh, I think the readers will will um, will realize uh, some of the vulnerabilities that we all have, and I was not shy of admitting them. That's amazing. As you were saying that about the labels, I have to ask, and pardon my ignorance. There um, is no warning label around up right now. Yes, but if I'm not mistaken, I thought I, I think I recall that when I have bought things like toys for my kids or you know other devices, maybe from eBay or Amazon and stuff, if it came from other countries, I remember the first time I saw that label, like this could cause cancer. I was just like, what in, why is this here? Like, how did I even purchase this? Right. And then I started seeing like a couple of more things and I realized it was actually fairly common. Like the threshold was much lower coming from these, whether it was, you know, I don't, I wish I remember the country. So I sound, you know, again, pardon my ignorance, but those kind of standards or those thresholds to admit that, or, or at least inform, rather, that something could cause cancer or there has been some relationships. I want to say even in California, there's like some, like their regulatory, like, you know. Yeah, they have, they have something called Prop 65, which re usually really follows the uh, the uh, IARC, which is the division of WHO. So if the IARC, which is subdivision of WHO, classifies a compound as cancerous, Prop 65 in California follows suit usually. And so if they classify it as such, that's something that's still only classified in, in an American organization, or is that a worldwide thing? No, the state of, you talk about glyphosate in general? No, for like that prop, 
that no, prop? No, this is state of California. This they follow the IARC specifically. So the IARC is uh, stands for the International Agency of Research on Cancer. It is a subdivision of the WHO, the, the World Health Organization. And what IARC does, they usually, you know, their task is to look at compounds or materials that are used ubiquitously in the in 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 the world and. Uh, that there's some suggestion they may be harmful. And what they do is they look at the published evidence to evaluate whether this is a carcinogen or not carcinogen. So glyphosate was the um, compound that was uh, reported on in March 2015. Uh, the IARC investigators, they met in Lyon, France, and they issued the report that they reviewed animal studies mechanistic studies that we just talked about, and human studies, which are mainly epidemiologic studies. And they came up with the conclusion, and they gave glyphosate the conclusion it was category 2A. So category 2A in IARC means that the compound is a probable human carcinogen. Category 1, it means it is a definite carcinogen. Category 2A, it means probable. And the reason they have that is because the epidemiologic studies are not perfect. So, uh, as any study is not perfect. But to give you an example of something that's category one, EBV, right? Epstein-Barr virus. We know it's carcinogen in several cancers. Hepatitis C, active hepatitis C. It's a category one. Glyphosate was 2A, which means it's probable. So, um, so... The state of California in general, they follow the IARC, whatever the IARC comes up uh, with. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's, that's what the IARC does. So, you know, they look at uh, pretty much the issue statements every sometimes twice a year, sometimes more, depending what they review. And the paper on glyphosate was published by Guyton al. And this came out in, I believe, May 2015 in Lancet Oncology. So after they get the report and everything, it gets published in Lancet Ecology. Wow. And people can look up, like, for their own curiosity in IR pretty easily, right? It's like public information. And oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's actually, it's, they, they go to the website and they could look at all of the prior reports. And I do have references on that in the book because the book is heavily referenced because it's, it's important for people to, to see where the data is coming from. Because everything in the book, by the way, is public information. Once you go in public court, if we sue each other, Sanjay, and we go into court, it's public information. Unless the judge says this is closed, like nobody can actually do anything. But other than that, everything is open. So you see the testimonies, you see the information, the evidence, the exhibits, because it's public court. And uh, the, the only thing that people cannot see is anything that the judge seals is confidential and they're not allowed to see other than that it's all public information and i think your viewers and listeners can verify a lot of the information there are references in the book but they can go to dr google and find a lot of the information as well what i did hopefully is provide this in a concise manner but as a story like i, I like storytelling and hopefully this this came out as a story awesome that's neat i mean really we had a last weekend i had a you know, kind of a meeting with, with some more visible medical educators and social media, you know, to a degree, and the president of AMA, Jesse Earnhardt. And we really talked about, like, 
doctors are and the healthcare professionals in general are just not proactive enough about like advocacy and like legislative things like like whether it's like making sure that the emotional health of physicians or the the health of the patients aren't compromised and we just need to do better so like i don't know i'm sure in louisiana or at least most southern states that i doubt it's been to be entertained to adopt iarc uh you know in the same way yeah, that but california you remember like right, the epa disagrees with iarc so the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, as I said, they said, they say, glyphosate is not carcinogenic. And I said, I respectfully disagree. I don't believe they have looked as carefully and as critically as they should have to the, uh, to, or to the evidence. And I've testified to this. I said, I fine, that's their conclusion, and I don't agree with it. Yeah. But even so, it just for people, I and mean, people nowadays are way more... They want to be more, way more involved. They want to like use, you know, and I think rightfully, justifiably to a large degree, like heightened caution. It's not this kind of patriarchal, you know, matriarchal dictatorial. Like it's not a problem. And I told you it's not a problem. People are a little more mistrusting. And I, again, I think it's somewhat rightfully so. I think the whole COVID pandemic definitely showed the fallibility and the humility of medicine and everything. But those people, like, again, if you didn't know that about California and at least in understanding that IARC is different and all that, those are things that can happen, you know, change in state levels. Like Louisiana is one of the worst cancer rates in the country, like by far, has been forever. So it's like, I understand that it's not necessarily the, you know, the the same thing as 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 this other classification system, but but it's something that somebody should be worth considering. Yeah, why has our state, you know, policy looked at this and should we adopt it like California has? We have but, to realize that there are certain external factors that cause cancer. And these, the use of external factors right, differ at the zip code level and at the state level. Mm-hmm. I mean, we cannot ignore environmental exposures and where we live and how this might impact what happens to our body in terms of risk versus benefit. There's a reason why, you know, you see, for example, differences in cancer rates very in, in, in certain uh, states, uh, obesity rates and other things, because, you know, there are other factors that contribute to these things. Yeah, diet and and I mean, it's, it's cultural. It's just confounded so many layers. Right. Some say it's the water. Some say it's all the industry and the smoke. And you know, so it's cancer is complicated. It's basically what at some point in every podcast we hit that you know conclusion. <laughs> um, so, is there anything else you want to share, Charlie, that you're interested in as far as either outside of even the roundup concept, like metabolically, or just what people can do? Like we keep saying, like, it's very confusing. We're not sure. And you may or may not. What are some things that you would say as a general practice? You know, we've discussed several times, like, unfortunately, you know, obesity is linked. Just, it just is what it is. Correlatively, we had good uh, certain, certain cancers. It is. I mean, not to all cancers. Not all. Right. Cancers. And then we had, you know, Jason Fung, uh, the author of the obesity code um, and the cancer code and the diabetes code, I think. Really, like he has his kind of similar to to Thomas Seafried uh, when it comes to low glycemic diets and kind of the mitochondrial injury. What is? Do you have a? Do you have it somewhat of a position, or or do you think it's more serendipitous than than I guess maybe people can appreciate as far as no, the no, polymorphisms and all? I think we've made significant progress over the past twenty years. I think we are literally at the tip of the iceberg in terms of understanding why certain cancers occur. 
And 50 years ago, if I told you this is where we are going to be today in the way we treat even cancer and the way we diagnose cancer, you would think it's some science fiction type of movie. If I would tell you I'm going to know the DNA and the RNA of a tumor and I'm going to have a target and I'm going to direct a magic bullet to that target and the cancer cell would die, it's like, ah, get out of here. Right. But here we are. So imagine what's going to happen in the next 10 to 20 years. It's all good for patients because as I told you, we're all going to be patients. But the way I have looked at cancer always is that there are certain elements that we can control and certain things that we can't control. Unfortunately, nobody lives forever. And as we age, our ability to repair the damage that occurs to certain cells become just worse. Our immune system become worse. And that's why we see cancer in older folks more than 65 or 70 years old. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask older people about their exposures and other reversible risk factors, but, but facts are facts. So there are certain things that we can control. So do I have a definite study to tell you that if you exercise regularly, you have lower risk of cancer? No, I don't. But do I need to? No, I don't. I think exercising regularly and staying fit makes sense. It's a healthy lifestyle. It hopefully we have data on cardiovascular part and on obesity and diabetes. So hopefully this really lends to good health style. Um, you know, we can control tobacco use. We can control alcohol use. We can control exercise. Uh, we can control our diet. It's very difficult. The diet piece and how the diet affects cancer is all over the place. I actually have a podcast coming out on my own podcast. On, on diet and cancer, it's, it's always, you know, it's not easy, right? I mean, there's stuff I, on your podcast, you've talked about keto diet, metabolism, other things. You know, to, to the extent you could do it without having a miserable life because you live only once, you can't just say you can't eat anything. But then there are things you can't control. I mean, if you just, if you have the Lynch syndrome or the BRCA1 or the BRCA2, this is just something that happened. I mean, what are you going to do? You can't really control that. You can't get rid of a mutated gene, and you just have to to manage the issue. And then the environmental piece, I'm, I'm a firm believer it does have an impact. And But what does the environmental stuff do? They just damage the cells that we have. And the damaging the cells, then they become uh, cancerous. So I tell my patients, I tell people, focus on the things that you can control. Work on these. Stay fit. Don't gain weight. Don't be obese don't uh, smoke. Uh, I personally don't drink alcohol. I think others probably do. And I think, you know, the data is depending on the cancer. There's some strong data and some weak data with alcohol. And, and then I say the things you can't control, just hope that the science advances. That if something happens, we'll be able to control it and treat it. I mean, what can you do about things you can't control? 100%. That's, it's, I think, I think that nails on the head. That's definitely our most common, you know, from our expert experts. Like it, it's true. I think that's where wisdom comes. With wisdom comes the realization that we there's so much more to learn. Like we said earlier, you know. And so anyone that I tells mean, you the, the statement, first question that your patient asks you when you see them, why did I get this? Yeah, it's the first question we get asked, and it's a fair question. And sometimes you say, I don't know. It, I just don't know. But let me check X, Y, and Z and investigate. But the idea is that you always don't know and you refuse to investigate. The idea is that this is bad luck. 
is, as I said, a cop-out. And this is one of the defense ways that Monsanto has argued. It's the bad luck theory. I promise you, if it was one of the Monsanto executives who had the cancer, they would not take that bad luck theory as an answer. They would want to know why. And sometimes that why, the answer to that why is bad luck. I don't know. But don't say that before you investigate. Don't say that before you investigate. Think about a young patient who comes in with a heart attack. A 45-year-old person who comes in with a myocardial infarction. You are going to ask the questions about all of the risk factors. And sometimes you don't even know and you may think about clotting reasons why somebody had that because you can't find the cause. But you don't say, I don't know, unless you rule everything out that you actually know and increases the risk. The same thing here. In non-Hodgkin lymphoma, we ask the questions about all of the factors that might increase the risk. And we may end up with a reason by saying, I don't know, and let's focus on your treatment and move on. Or you might come up with a reason that might give you the cause and that might help in managing counseling and other things for that patient. So you're, you know, your your experience that makes again there's so much sense. And I'm thinking when you say you know the I don't know and we're, you know if people are listening to this and thinking environmental or nutritional or anything like that, you are knowledgeable or privy to this whole concept, which is initially why we started this podcast on precision oncology and target you know stuff, and then almost got my mind just blown when I had an electro biophysicist saying it's not even always a molecular problem; it's an escape from the actual like bioelectric landscape that causes independent growth and therefore there's a cancer and it's doing what it's supposed to do to the metabolic part. But you were privy to the, I believe, the knowledge and understanding of two things. Number one, this whole concept of a blood test for cancer, right? And there's there's different ways to put it. There's one where if you have a cancer and it's shedding something that's in its coding or DNA, you can kind of catch maybe, maybe a piece of that and say, aha, we know that these mutations have a 99.9 or whatever, 90% chance of being cancerous. You just don't usually find them in normal cells. And then you can you know, potentially investigate. But then there's this whole concept of like what you're saying, I don't know, or, I, or do I really not know? Because everyone keeps saying BRCA is, and, and some of these more common ones, TB53 is just the beginning. We're learning all these other things that can kind of make the setting for something to happen or not happen, right? Like, you need to soil the soil properly to have weeds, you know, no, I guess, referential intention there or, or intentional, I'll leave it to you. And then, and then a desert is just not going to, you know, foster some things. And then you talk about autoimmune. Where are we with that whole concept of a blood test on both? And I have to say this a lot when I'm on news things, but people get it very confused. Is it, I'm still cautious, still cautious about the whole concept of you can catch it really early with a blood test. Because you have to be able to locate it first. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, look, I mean, at the end of the day, the concept of blood tests to detect cancer conceptually, it's a screening test. I mean, exactly. what we're, it's a really a screening test. I mean, what you're doing with a mammogram or a colonoscopy is you're screening. So the only difference in what you're referring to, which what we call obviously in science liquid biopsy, is basically you're trying to screen healthy patient population, healthy people, they're not patients, and using a blood test and hoping that that screening could pick up the 
particular predisposition to certain cancers. They may not have cancer at the time of the test, but maybe the test will tell you they're going to progress to this. I think we are too early with that. I think it's an important piece, but I would actually caution us that I think it's possible that these early detection blood tests might be more beneficial in certain patient populations versus another. You know, um, should a 22-year-old healthy person undergo that test versus, you know, a 50-year-old with a strong family history and some risk factors? I think the, the, uh, the counseling these patients is, is different. It's literally like, you know, do you do a mammogram in a 32-year-old healthy woman without any risk factors? You don't. So why not? Why not start at 18? Why do colonoscopies at 45 versus 30? You do it at 30 in some patient population who are high risk factors and, and all of that. So I think it's the same concept that should really evolve. And I believe that the field would benefit from identifying that patient population where really doing these tests is important. Now, you have to remember then, you know, in addition to selecting the patient population that you need to study, you really want to select the test with a particular balance between specificity and sensitivity, right? I mean, we all know, I mean, obviously your listeners uh, are very well informed, but simply, if you have a very high sensitivity test, you're going to pick up certain things that may not be clinically relevant, first of all, and there's, you increase the false positive, right? You're going to pick, so you can pick everything. You're going to pick the noise as well as the signal. And then specificity, you also have the issue with, with false negative. So to me, I think what is very important is the positive predictive value. That is more important than the sensitivity and the specificity. The positive predictive value in these tests would be probably more essential to, to move forward. So I think there's a lot that we don't know, but I am very, you know, obviously I am very interested in seeing where that actually goes, but I would caution us to select carefully the population that will benefit from that test, similar to any other screening test that we do today. This is another tool of screening test. It's, it's potentially more dangerous if it's abused because people worry about the colonoscopy because it's invasive and things like that. Well, this is just a blood test, so you may see a lot of people doing it, and then and then people don't know what to do with the results, and so there's a lot of downstream effects. So I think we need to continue to explore, study, and analyze as we move forward. Hopefully, I did not complicate things. I tried to simplify things. Yeah, it, I maybe more complicated because I feel the same way. I'm just like. And then if you find it, what if our imaging modalities don't actually are sensitive enough to find it? Like, you know it's there, but what are you going to do about it if you don't know where it is, if your CT scan can't pick it up because you need 200 million cells to see it? Like, then you just have psychological duress and distress, you know, for no reason. But now, I, then I had a, a guest about ALA, and apparently that's picked up a lot metabolically, and those imaging techniques are, like, super more sensitive than a PET scan. It's just, it's just crazy. But the point is, I think overall... You do the best you can, educate yourself, but then don't over, like, you know, worry about it either. Just there's too many serendipitous, you know, pieces uh, at play. But uh, this whole polymorphism thing is really of interest to me, and and that's probably just for another podcast. But it, it, it anyone listening, it tells you why some people can smell asparagus in their urine, for example, and others can't. And it can tell you why 
you know, some people ibuprofen works and some people doesn't. I mean, you can just whittle it down to anything, like really why you blink when you look at the sun. These are all polymorphisms. And then when I found out that, you know, this whole concept of biopharmacogenetics, which means we just shotgun dosing on chemo and treatments. Well, you're this many pounds and you're, you know, this, you know, kidney function, this is what we're going to give you. And the, the fact that you could know so much more about the toxicities, overshooting them, undershooting them based on the abilities of a, of a person to be able to metabolize high on this, low on this. There are compounds that are broken down four different times and you can have a varying degree at each step. But we just shoot, we just shotgun it all. Even though we have the knowledge that these various variations exist and we could do this kind of tailored um, dosing, you know, I, I assume it's because it's too expensive, but there's just, it's almost like the more you know, the more frustrating it is sometimes, right? Like it's just kind of well, like worms in the air. Yeah, I mean, but I think it's still. I think it's it's we're 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 in a very good era in terms of trying to help people and help patients, and we know more today than we ever knew before. With knowledge, there comes additional challenges. We need to figure out how to apply that knowledge on a particular patient, and I think nuance in medicine is very important. And nuance means you really get to know the patient specifically get to understand what's going on and being able to apply the scientific information into a particular patient case is not easy it's almost the art of medicine right i mean that's what it is it's a socratic method to why but why why this why i get i love that so i did philosophy in undergrad so i would like you to read you know a portion or two uh that you wanted to share, well, expert-wise. Well, this is uh, just part of the preface in the beginning. Draining and demanding as the experience was, I must admit that it was also dramatic. In many ways, the experience was akin to being a character in a John Grisham novel or a modern-day version of Silkwood. I'd like to tell you the tale, not as a legal expert, a journalist, or an environmental scientist, but from my ringside seat as one of the medical oncology witnesses. I was someone who had never testified in court as an expert witness before, but suddenly found himself testifying in three highly visible trials within one year. I invite you, I invite you to see the American judicial process the way I saw it, at the highest levels, behind the scenes, and with life, death, and billions of dollars in the balance. Reading this book, you can sit behind me and watch epic trials. You'll see a quintessential David versus Goliath battle unfold before your eyes. So I'll stop here. That's that's awesome. I can I can already hear you narrating the Netflix show. I wow. did actually. I did narrate the book, by the way. Did so, you good? So your viewers can actually, if they like audiobook. It's available on audio uh, with my narration. I apologize for having to listen to me for 10 hours. I have an ugly voice, but they get stuck with it. Uh, and it's available on Kindle as well. Toxic Exposure. That's the name and not a toxic voice. I think it's very pleasant. And that's why you have also your own podcast, Healthcare Unfiltered. Well, Chadi, this was a pleasure. Um, I'm very interested to read it, to understand that. I think physicians have just such a poor understanding unless they do it on their own volition in some tiny little, you know, nook of time to be able to understand these things. But unfortunately today, you can't separate medicine and legal and bureaucracy and red tape and, and you know, standards. It's just, it's just necessary ultimately for patient care. So I really appreciated what you did on, 
what sounded like a very stressful time, but it doesn't show on your face or in your hair. So it, it looks like you did okay. Well, I think uh, the gray hair is not showing uh, as much. I just put a lot of water on my hair to hide the gray hair. But uh, it's a pleasure being on your show, Sanjay. Keep uh, keep up everything that you're doing. It's really uh, a privilege, and I appreciate your invite. I appreciate you uh, letting me share the uh, the podium with you and with your listeners and viewers. Awesome.